Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun. Let's pray. <coughs> Our glorious Father in heaven, we praise you this morning. We praise you again. This is a new day. We thank you for the unspeakable blessing it is to know you. To come together as your people, to be yours, and to have the great privilege of singing your praises and laying our requests before you and hearing from you. Father, I pray that as we meditate upon this passage that we just read this morning, that you would speak to us, for you have given this scripture to us for our instruction, and I pray that you would instruct us this morning. I pray that we would all have ears to hear, Lord, hearts to reflect, and soften our hard hearts, Lord, and remove the distractions that are external to us and internal to us, so that we can truly hear what you're saying through the scriptures to us. Thank you that you love us so much. You love this world. Lord, help us to see in a fresh way who you are this morning. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Becoming a Follower of Jesus. Becoming a Follower of Jesus. For the passage that we read this morning is about five men who became followers of Jesus. And their story of becoming followers of Jesus sheds permanent light upon the various ways people have become followers of Jesus, do become followers of Jesus, and will continue to become followers of Jesus until the door is closed and it's too late to become a follower of Jesus. So this passage is about becoming a follower of Jesus, and there's permanent light here for us if we will meditate on it and consider it. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We use that phrase a lot. What exactly does that mean? And there's potential for confusion 
in that phrase because we, we can speak of that phrase in a variety of ways. Now, when we talk about following Jesus, we don't mean following him like you follow someone on Twitter. Okay? <laughs> you know how it is to follow someone online, right? You go on their Twitter page, Instagram, or whatever, Facebook, and you click follow, and what happens is you get updates from them. So you kind of keep up on that. You keep up on what they're saying, what they're doing. Some people like to follow the Utah Jazz or some sports team, right? They keep up on it. They like to see what the what progress is being made, but there's there's a distance there, isn't there? When you follow someone online or when you follow a sports team, you're just kind of at a distance, just checking up on them and seeing how what's going on. You don't necessarily agree with them. Maybe you don't even like them. Maybe you don't like their sports team. Maybe you don't like that person on Twitter, but you follow them, just keeping up. What are, what are they what are they up to? Well, Jesus had lots of followers in that sense in his day, right? The Pharisees were if you could say Twitter followers of Jesus, right? You don't mean that when we talk about becoming a follower of Jesus. Nor do we mean the following. And this is perhaps more common. This is a more common confusion or misunderstanding. When we talk about becoming a follower of Jesus, brothers and sisters, we don't mean imitating the life of Christ. Becoming a follower of Jesus, by that in the Bible, we don't mean imitating the life of Christ, or we might say following his example. Okay? I'm following Jesus, meaning I'm following his example. What he did, I do. What would Jesus do? That's what I do. The opening lines of a very famous book, The Imitation of Christ, by Thomas Akempis, you probably heard of it. It's a famous book, but it's an unfortunately unbiblical book. The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And here's the opening statement in that book. He who follows me walks not in darkness, says the Lord. By these words of Christ, we are advised to imitate his life and habits. This is a medieval work. And his understanding is, if we follow Christ, we won't be in darkness. And by following Christ, we mean imitating his life and his habits. And the rest of that book, called The Imitation of Christ, is about, he keeps telling us, the campus tells us, if you want to know God, if you want to experience salvation, we need to be like Jesus in his life and his habits. Now, brothers and sisters, it is good to imitate Jesus. I'm not in any way saying that's not good. In fact, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we are exhorted to imitate the Lord Jesus. It's okay to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? But that is not what it means to become a follower of Jesus. So what does it mean to become a follower of Jesus according to the Bible? Well, if we look carefully at what it means to follow Jesus, when Je and I'm speaking of when Jesus says, follow me, right? And he says that to each one of us. And when he says, follow me, he doesn't mean, follow me like on Twitter. Or, follow me like what would Jesus do and imitate my life and habits. But if we look carefully at what he means, following Jesus is equivalent to being a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus. When he says, follow me, he's inviting you into discipleship. And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, the word disciple simply means a student or a pupil or a learner. So when he says, follow me, he's basically saying, come and learn from me. Let me be your guide. Let me be your teacher. Let me be your shepherd. In chapter 6, in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, we can see this in that many of his disciples left him after he taught some pretty hard things. So in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, you'll remember Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. That's a teaching of Jesus. Thankfully, not everyone abandoned him. Some Peter, Peter speaking for those who didn't abandon Jesus at that saying, said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the teacher of truth. I don't understand what you're talking about, but you're my guide. But it says many stopped following him at that time. They were following him. They were learning from him up to that point, and they said no. 
following Jesus as a teacher. Now in the days of his incarnation, that might involve traveling with Jesus, physically, and learning from him. But that doesn't mean that we have to physically be with Jesus traveling and learning from him, because we have his words recorded here in scripture. Even in Jesus' day, there was disciples who didn't follow him physically. The Pharisees claimed to be disciples of Moses. They weren't following Moses physically, but they were students of Moses. They were his pupils. Being a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus means this. If the option of believing Jesus, if, there, if there's an option I have to choose, I'm either going to believe what Jesus says, or I'm going to believe what the Pharisees say. I'm going to believe, I have to choose between believing what Jesus teaches versus what Muhammad teaches, versus what my high school teacher teaches, versus what my culture teaches. I'm going to go with Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He's my guide, he's my shepherd. As a sheep, I follow the shepherd where he leads and where he takes me to work. Jesus did not come into the world simply to be a healer or a do-gooder, a do-gooder, but a teacher. Amen. He came to bring light into the world. That is, he came to, be, to bring the truth of religion, the truth of God into the world. He came to bring us the revelation of the Father. He came as a teacher by what he taught and by what he did. He was teaching. Here's a quick, let's just look at this quickly. This is emphasized and shown in the Gospel of John. So we already see this in chapter 1, verse 38. We read this. They said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. So they come after him. Teacher, we want to follow you. So they acknowledge right from the beginning he's a teacher. Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 2 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Okay? So Nicodemus is recognizing you're a teacher. You're here teaching us. Yes, you're doing miracles. He acknowledges them. But that's not all that you're doing. Right? In the same chapter, look at verse 34 of chapter 3. Verse 34 of chapter 3. This is John the Baptist now talking about Jesus' testimony. And he says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, or believe the Son, or hear the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So there John the Baptist is saying, He speaks the words of God. And if you don't believe what he's saying, the wrath of God abides on you. You don't have it. Chapter 4, verse 25. Chapter 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So this was her understanding, and she wasn't wrong. When the Messiah comes, he's going to teach us the truth about religion and about God and salvation. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you. Chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, verse 12. Yeah. Because of what Jesus teaches. It wasn't really his miracles that were the problem, it was his teaching. And the crowds are conflicted. In verse 12 of chapter 7, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man, others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. His teaching is taking us away from the truth. Yet no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, in Jesus' day, um, 
the Jewish people were actually literate, they were educated. This doesn't mean he was, they were saying, hey, you know, he doesn't know how to read. What they mean is he wasn't educated in theology. He wasn't, uh, he didn't go on to study with the rabbis and get a formal rabbinic education. But Jesus says in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. One final verse in the Gospel of John, because there's so many that. Chapter 18. Just jumped at the end here. Chapter 18. Verse 37. Chapter 18, verse 37. This is Jesus before Pilate. This is such an important verse when it comes to Jesus' mission. What was he coming into the world with? It says here in verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my words. So, you know, we need to ask ourselves, reflect on our Christianity a little bit. Do you see that you as a Christian have a relationship with Jesus that is teacher and student? <clears throat> you understand that is true about yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ. That He, even though He's He has come and He has gone back into heaven, it doesn't mean that we're not still to be His followers and to be His disciples. Do you see yourself as having a teacher and student relationship? I have listened as a Christian to what he has taught about God. And I am Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's probably as good as a description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus as anyone. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. And the point of this teaching, Jesus tells us, is that we might know the truth and be set free by it. That's what Jesus wants for your life and for the life of your friends and for the life of those who don't know him in this world. He wants them to know the truth so that they might be set free. The truth of who God is sets us free, brothers and sisters. This morning, we're going to look at the first three. Let's go back to John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first three disciples of Jesus, his earliest disciples, and how they became followers of Jesus. So I'm going to call this Becoming a Follower of Jesus, part one. Next week, we'll do part two, and we'll look at Philip and Nathaniel. We're just going to look at Andrew, John, and Peter this morning. Because they can't cram it all into one term. This story is recorded not just for historical preservation. John's list not just writing it so we just don't forget what happened, but for our instruction and to instruct us at all times. We should always think about origins and first things that they have so much to teach us. Usually, the first thing contains principles that are. Uh, for us. So we're going to draw lessons from Jesus' very first disciples. What can we learn from them becoming followers? So first we'll look at Andrew and John and then Simon Peter. Now there might be an objection before we begin. These are apostles. Okay? These guys are part of the inner twelve disciples, the special ones that Jesus called to himself. So how can their experience with Jesus really apply to us? Now, if they're coming to Jesus, how can that really apply if they're these unique 12? 
But it's important to see in this chapter that Jesus is not, in this chapter, choosing his 12 disciples. This is not him choosing. That comes much later. Jesus will later choose his 12. This is simply Jesus meeting them, or rather, them meeting him for the first time. And as they meet him, they decide to follow him be his disciples. And so there's lessons for us who also want to be his disciples. So let's begin with Andrew and John. Look at verse 35 of chapter 1. Verse 35 says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. John the Baptist, we talked about last week, was extremely popular in the first century, and he had many disciples. But that historic day, he was standing with two of them. Who were these two that he was standing with? We're told in the text, one is Andrew, but we're not told who the other one Give a guess to the other ones. Traditionally, it's believed that the other disciple is John, the beloved, the author of this gospel. And the reason that he's the best candidate that we have is that we do know that all of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles of Jesus, they were present at the time of the baptism of John. Because remember in the book of Acts, when they're going to replace Judas, they say, it has got to be replaced by someone who was with us at the very beginning when John was baptized. So we do know that John was was there and he was he was present at this time, <coughs> paying attention to John the Baptist and joining Jesus at the time of Jesus' baptism. So John was certainly present. Nothing rules him out. Secondly, it seems to be John's trademark to mention himself in a shrouded way. So when John wants to talk about himself, he usually doesn't say, I was standing there with Andrew, right? Andrew and I were next to John. He doesn't do that. He usually mentions himself in some kind of a bare way. So that seems to fit the mark here. And then thirdly, it seems like the account of Andrew and this other disciple joining Jesus is quite detailed. And it seems to bear the marks of an eyewitness. I mean, I mean Jesus' movements, the time of day, it all seems to bear the mark of an eyewitness. So really, while we can't be perfectly um, sure that it's John, he is our best candidate. So I'm going to go on assuming that it is John. And we see that John the Baptist is standing there with Andrew and John. And he again points his finger and proclaims his culminating witness to Jesus. Behold the Lamb. That is the ultimate witness that John the Baptist had when when he came into this, when John the Baptist was sent by God. That was his preeminent witness. If you miss this, you really miss the point that John is getting at. John is not simply saying Jesus is the Messiah, or that Jesus is exalted, but that Jesus is the Lamb. This is the second time he says it, so there's a good repetition, there's emphasis. In verse 35, it starts with the word, again. He looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So there's an emphasis here. John Calvin comments, We ought also to observe what is the chief object to which John directs the attention of men. It is to find in Christ the forgiveness of sin. So if you're not, maybe you're not a Christian this morning, you think, what's Christianity all about? You haven't yet figured it out that the forgiveness of sins is really central here and understanding Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, then you need to learn a lesson from John the Baptist. Christianity is not just, a, it's not about you joining God's army and serving him and, and reforming your life and trying to be the best person you can be. It's about understanding Jesus the Messiah came into the world Sin. That you need him to take away your sin. Come to him to receive the forgiveness. The two disciples of John follow Jesus. Probably what that means here is that they just physically followed him. They just went after him physically, with the intent, of course, to follow him as their new guide and shepherd. Now, here we need to stop and Consider a crucial lesson about becoming a follower of Jesus. Here's the question. 
we need to consider for ourselves. Would Andrew and John have become followers of Jesus if they had not been followers of John the Baptist? So that's what the story says, right? They're, they're John's the Baptist disciples, standing with John, hanging out with John, learning from John. And because they're there, and John points to Jesus, they become, would they have become followers of Jesus if they weren't followers of John the Baptist? What if the antecedent facts were otherwise? What if they weren't interested in John the Baptist? What if Andrew and John were just interested in their fishing and making money? They didn't have interest in the preacher John the Baptist. They didn't see their need to be baptized. They didn't heed his preaching. They didn't confess their sins. They weren't looking eagerly forward to the Messiah. Would they have been there that day? Would they have followed after the Lord? The answer is no. Now, I agree that sometimes by extraordinary providences, God works in a person's life who's not in any way seeking for him. Who's not in any way interested in him. And God goes to that person and gets hold of them, and it's all on God's Heart and they aren't doing any searching whatsoever. That can happen. But brothers and sisters, that is not ordinary, but extraordinary. And it's not ever to be our place to presume upon God's extraordinary providences and say, well, you know, I don't really, I'm not going to think about God, I'm not going to care about God, I'm not going to see God, and I'm just going to, you know, hope that one day God will just come into my life and he will get a hold of my attention. You know, that's what God does, right? He's done it before, he'll do it for me. It's not our place to presume upon God's extraordinary providences, but to learn a lesson from Jesus' first disciples. His first disciples came to him not through any extraordinary providence, but through ordinary providence, through God working in their life in a rather ordinary kind of way, through the preaching of his truth. By stirring up their interests in spiritual things. This is how God ordinarily works. And it's safe to conclude that apart from God doing anything extraordinary in the lives of Andrew and John, if they had not been disciples of John the Baptist, they would not have become followers of Jesus, and they would not have become apostles of Jesus, and they would not have been saved. I think we think too quickly about this, right? Well, there are the 12 apostles, and so obviously there was extraordinary providences. No, there wasn't. That's interesting, isn't it? We need to think about this. We need, when we read the Bible, to, to, to learn to read between the lines, okay? To read not only what is explicitly stated, but also what isn't explicitly stated. And we need to consider the facts that aren't explicitly stated. Consider the facts about these two. They are far from home. Where's their home? Where's Andrew and John? Where are they from? Generally, Galilee. Right? John the Baptist is not baptizing in Galilee. John the Baptist is baptizing in the wilderness and the banks of the Jordan. And so what we see here is that these two fishermen are with John the Baptist in the wilderness. They are far from home. They are far from work. They are far from earning money. Okay? And what that tells us is these guys are deeply religious men who are doing what Jesus tells all people to do, and that is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and not to worry about what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to do? God knows you need all those things. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He will take care of you. So before Jesus tells people to do that, they're already doing that. They're seeking God's kingdom. They've left home, left work, left family. Why? Because there's this man who's preaching in the wilderness about the kingdom of God. And we're interested in that subject. We're concerned about our souls. We're concerned about the knowledge of God. That's worth going on a vacation for. You know, a retreat, taking a break from work, 
seeking God's kingdom. And not only do we see that they're seeking God's kingdom, they're very deeply religious men, spiritually interested men. We need to also consider John the Baptist is not receiving an endorsement from the Pharisees, right? John the Baptist isn't receiving an endorsement from the religious establishment in their day. So we learned something else about John, John and Andrew. That not only are they concerned about spiritual matters and God in their souls, but they're also not unthinking. They're also not men who settle for cheap answers. Okay? They're the kind of guys who are willing to go apart from their culture and the prevailing establishment in their day and to seek the truth of God. A rare quality, actually. How many of you know that so many people, first of all, they aren't deeply interested in the question of their soul and of God. But if they are interested in it, they're just quick to settle in, well, that's what I've always believed. You know? That's what my parents believe. Well, I've always gone to this church, right? And so they just settle for the established way of thinking. They're not really, I want truth. I don't want tradition. I don't want what some man says. I want what God says. And this John the Baptist seems to be speaking the words of God. And I know the Pharisees won't like it if I go, but I'm going. And I know it's going to hurt business, but I'm going. <laughs> so in seeing all this, we see that Andrew and John, before they came to Christ and became his followers, they took very seriously what we can call God's preparatory revelation. As God has been speaking to mankind before Jesus came, He's been speaking about His existence and His power and His wisdom through nature, right? Before Jesus ever came. And obviously, to become a follower of Jesus, we need to be interested in the question of who God is, right? Who is God? Who is my creator? Nature's telling me there's this awesome creator, and I want to know him. I'm interested. I'm not just interested in making money. That's the kind of people John is. But not only does nature prepare us for coming to Jesus, but God also gave preparatory revelation in the law, in Moses, in the prophets, right? God brought Israel out of Egypt and gave him his righteous, moral law to show them what he requires in order to be in relationship with him. John and Andrew took that very seriously. You see Philip taking that seriously when he tells Nathaniel, we have found the one whom Moses and the prophets write about. So they're, they're listening and considering what God has already spoken through Moses and through the prophets. They're hearing in John's preaching, who also is a prophet to prepare the way for Jesus. They're hearing continuity with Moses and the prophets. You know, John's saying we're all sinners. Yeah, that's the impression I get from Moses, right? Pharisees say we're doing it if we try. John's saying we're not doing it. I get that impression from Moses, right? Moses requires perfection. So by listening to Moses, I... John is on his own. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. Unless God works by an extraordinary providence, and he can, but unless he does, if we do not take seriously God's preparatory revelations to us, we will not become followers of Jesus. That is why so many people can read the Bible or come to church and hear a message about Jesus and they don't become followers of Jesus because they're not interested in the question of their soul. Right? They're not interested in the question of God. Yeah, I hear about Jesus I need to be saved, but you know whatever. It's not important to me. i got other things that are more important. Or maybe they're interested in the question of God but they've already locked in and settled in with not the truth, but just the comfortable family religion. <laughs> and so you preach them, you say, you've got to believe in Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This 
I'm happy where I am, you know? And so it is with us. We need to learn a lesson becoming a follower of Jesus. We can learn from the original disciples of Jesus how it happened. It was because they took seriously God's preparatory revelation. They were disciples of John. Therefore, they were disciples of Jesus. Which brings us to the next point, that is, when they followed Jesus here, they were not leaving John the Baptist in depths. They were not abandoning their The non-believing Jews today say if a Jew becomes a Christian, they've abandoned Moses and the prophets in their heritage. But we need to see when Andrew and John followed after Jesus, they were actually being faithful to their former teaching. He wants them to go to Jesus, right? I must decrease, he must increase. There's the Lamb of God. He's the one I'm pointing to. Go, lead me. Right? And they did. And so they were in their faithfulness to their teacher, John, they became disciples of Jesus. In a sense, you never leave being a disciple of John the Baptist or Moses and prophets or even nature when you become a Christian. It's not you're uprooting and becoming a new disciple. You're just, you're just, it's just adding on to. Jesus is the common He's the point of their ministry. G. Campbell Morgan says there's no rupture when they leave John the Baptist and go to Jesus. And so it is with, with us. There's no rupture, as I've said, with God's past revelation when we become Christians. In fact, it's the opposite is true. If you don't become a, a disciple of Jesus, there's rupture. If you do not follow Jesus Christ as his disciple and believe in him, you are betraying nature's testimony, and you are betraying Moses' testimony, and the prophets and John the Baptist's testimony. And if you claim to be their disciples, you're lying, and you're betraying them. So many people do that. But not Andrew and John. Can you imagine their excitement, brothers and sisters, when believing John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus, they go after Jesus. Can you imagine their excitement in their initial footsteps towards Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah, what follows in the text can be read as an unexceptional account of what transpired. This is a really interesting text that follows. It can be read in a sense, it can be read as just an unexceptional account of what transpired. They went to Jesus, he turned around, where do you stand? Over here, okay, come with me. It can be read in a very unexceptional sense. Jesus was fully human. And so the logistical circumstances of Jesus' life were as mundane as it is okay. And we could read this text in that way. It's just a mundane account of the logistical circumstances of what went down when Andrew and John went Or, on the other hand, it has struck readers of the Gospel of John when they read this passage that every word and expression is loaded with spiritual significance and alludes to the overall message <coughs> and theme of the Gospel of John. Have you ever noticed that if you've read this encounter with Andrew, John, and Jesus? You kind of scratch your head and say, am I supposed to be reading more significance in these words? You know? Because boy, it sure could be pretty unexceptional. But the language seems to allude to so many things elsewhere in this Gospel. And if it's true that there's deep spiritual significance here, then we do indeed have much to learn in this first encounter with Jesus and his first disciples. Now notice in verse 38 that as they come after Jesus, he notices them following him. And it says he turns around. Now that could be a mundane detail, as I said. There could be no significance in what that in that whatsoever. Just you know, when we follow Jesus, he saw us and turned around. Or there could be an insinuation here. There could be a special message here. Now 
that all who earnestly seek Jesus are noticed by and that Jesus reacts to us when we seek him. And he meets them and does not hide himself from those who seek him. Okay? Now Jesus could have seen Andrew and John following him and take up their pace, right? <laughs> <laughs> the text could have told us that you know he's the kind of guy who didn't want anyone following him. He's the kind of guy who was just private. And they're coming after me, and I don't want to be around, don't want to talk to them right now. And, and the text is telling us he's not like them. Now that could be a mundane detail, or it could be, as I think, alluding to something about the nature of who Jesus is. Not just that, but all of this. Jeremiah 29, verse 13 says, If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me, with all of your heart. God himself is saying, I'm not the kind of guy who hides from those who seek me. You seek me, you'll find me. I'm not going to run from you. If you truly seek me, I will make myself known. So there's an encouragement here for us today. He asks them this question in verse 38 What do you seek? Now, again, that could be as mundane as in, hey, what are you guys up to? Or, it could be the million dollar question, right? What do you seek? It could be loaded with significance. Do you seek a king? Do you seek a military deliverer? Do you seek the forgiveness of sins? Do you seek the knowledge of God? What do you seek is a good question for each and every single one of us to ask. What are you seeking in life? And when you follow after Jesus, what are you seeking from Because people join themselves to Jesus, or they think they do, and they have all sorts of motives and alternative motives. Now we might say, ultimately I desire peace. I seek for peace in my life. Now, I don't think that's a good enough answer. We all, of course, seek for peace. There's not one person in life that does not seek for peace. I think there's a deeper question. When you're seeking for peace, and when you're coming to Jesus for peace, do you really know what you're getting yourself into? Do you really know what it is you're seeking and what that will cause? What if peace requires you to drop the lies? Do you still want it? What if peace requires you to get rid of your self-righteousness, your friendship, with the world. What if, what if getting real peace from God means that everybody's going to hate you? You still want it? Do you seek genuine peace from me? Or do you, are you looking for kind of an, an invitation to peace? Just give me a Tylenol and make me feel better. <laughs> it actually fix my problems. <laughs> Even if this is a mundane question with no deeper significance, that's still a true question that we need to ask ourselves. And I think it's not mundane. I don't see why John would record all of these details if there, had, if there was no significance. He could have easily just said, and they followed Jesus. Next. I think it's fascinating that Jesus asks them this question because he already knows the answer. What are you seeking? He knows everything about them. He knows who they are, he knows their motives, and he knows their thoughts. But I think this is also a, a revelation of who Jesus is and who God is. It's, it seems to be, even in the Old Testament, characteristic of God to condescend and ask us questions that he already knows the answers to so that he can have a relationship with us. Adam, where are you? God, you know where I am. Right? He knew why did you do that? He knew why. But God, even though he knows everything, he condescends and talks to us so that we can have a relationship. He wants to hear from us. He wants to hear what we have to say. He wants to respond to us. <clears throat> what are you seeking? No. Yes, but I want to hear. I want to talk. Come to my house. 
Andrew and John, I think, are put on the spot by that question. They need a little bit of time. They can't just blurt out everything they want to say. So they say, teacher, where are you staying? Where are you dwelling? Where are you abiding? That's the Greek word. And boy, does that sound like a whole bunch of different places in the Gospel of John. Where are you abiding? Where are you dwelling? Where do you live? Now at the time, John and Andrew are really just asking for his temporal abode. Jesus, you're, you're here in the wilderness. Where are you staying? Where's your tent? You have a place you're staying? Can we hang out with you? So they probably didn't think anything more than that, but there seems to be an unmistakable allusion to the major theme in the Gospel of John of Christ's timeless, not temporal, but timeless abode and dwelling. What is Christ's timeless abode? We learn in the Gospel of John. We actually learned about it in the prologue. John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He's in the bosom of the Father. And this is expanded on by Jesus repeatedly. Here's an example. John 10, 38. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus keeps saying this. I live in the Father. I abide in the Father. I dwell in him, and he dwells in me. And this is Jesus' timeless about, and he was keen that we understood this. <laughs> right? Jesus wants us to understand that he's in the Father and the Father's in him, right? He was, and he was very keen that we understood that. And so when he says, come and you will see, again, is this just a mundane detail or is this a royal invitation? You follow me and I will show you where I am. And I think it's so beautiful, this engagement with Jesus and his first disciples. Because in it we see the openness of Jesus. We see there's no hesitation on his part to have a relationship with him and fellowship with him. And that he is even wanting to take the time to spend a whole day with them. And not only to spend the day with them, but as we go on in the Gospel of John to see, to invite them into his eternal and timeless love. They only spent the evening with Jesus. And that itself would have been, wow, how, what a gracious guy Jesus is to spend the whole thing with those guys. How much more gracious of Jesus that he wants to spend the rest of eternity And we see that it is so with us. We are invited into the abode of the Father and the Son. And Jesus wants us to be there. And so here in this first encounter with Jesus and his first words, we see the truth that John says in the prologue, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's how he said, when we, when we met Jesus, he was full of grace and truth. And this, you might say, there's not much here, but there's so much here because we see the fullness of his grace in God himself in the flesh inviting us to dwell with him. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Now, of course, we need to reflect here that such an invitation, such an idea that God would invite us into his eternal abode is unthinkable unless our sin is removed. It's unthinkable. Because another thing we learn about in the Bible is that God's justice drives us away from his presence. That is our desert. That is what we deserve. We don't deserve to be treated graciously and in a friendly way. We don't deserve to be invited to God's home, everlasting home. We deserve to be kicked out, cast away, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here we see that our sin must be removed if Jesus is going to invite us into his dwelling and live with us. And in love, Christ came to remove our sins. As the Lamb of God who will take our sins upon himself and die for them and pay the penalty for them and satisfy God's justice so that he can invite us into 
his eternal abode on that basis, on the basis of his sacrificial death that takes away our sins. And on that basis alone does he invite us in to eternal relationship. In chapter 14, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. I do the work to make it happen. You can't come in to his home unless I prepare the place for you. But if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, where I am, there you may be also. Jesus wants you to be with him so much that he made it possible for you to enter that home by laying down his life, taking care of your sins, your sins and my sins, so he could come, he could say, come and see. Isaac Watt, the hymn writer, says, he left the shining courts on high, came to our world to bleed and die. Jesus the Lord hung on a tree, come thoughtless sinner, come and see. Friends, to miss Christ, to miss out on him, to not become his follower, is not merely to miss out on the forgiveness of sins. The bigger thing of that is to miss out on life, but it's to miss out on friendship with God. To reject Jesus is to reject this God who wants to have friendship What a loss. Herbert Lockyer says, what wonderful, unforgettable hours those first ones with Jesus must have been. We don't know what was said during the rest of that day when they spent with Jesus, but the results are shown in verse 41. Look at verse 41 with me. Andrew found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Marcus Dodds, the theologian, says, in Jewish lips, we have found the Messiah was the most comprehensive of Eurekas. That is, that is, if you found the Messiah, you found everything. Okay? You found it all. And that's it's the same today. If you have found the Messiah and become his follower or believe in him, you've got everything now. Yeah, you found everything. That's the comprehensive Eureka. Such wonderful and serious news, such a wonderful and serious discovery, cannot be kept to oneself, brothers and sisters. And Andrew is quick to tell his brother. We should be quick to tell our family, our friends. We see here in the origin of Jesus' first disciples that the first disciple of Jesus became the first missionary. Here's a lesson for us. The first disciple is the first missionary. Andrew tells Peter. For doing that, he's been called the father of personal evangelism. And as well, Andrew has been called the spiritual grandfather of the thousands. I mean, I'm sure he led many people to the Lord himself. But we know that Peter led thousands of people to the Lord. And Andrew was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. F.F. Bruce says, no one can foresee when he brings a man or woman to Jesus, what Jesus will make of that person. Andrew didn't know what Peter would his, that his brother would become the first leader of the church in the, days, the earliest days. He just wanted his brother to know the truth. And it's the nature of finding Jesus, is that you find the pearl of great Christ. You find the most comprehensive Eureka, as Marcus says, and you, how can we not tell other people also? So we see Christianity has always been a missionary religion. Always. Right from the beginning. Because what we have is so wonderful. And in closing here, we're going to just briefly look at Simon Peter. And I'd just like to briefly look at how this pillar of the church became a follower of Jesus. And then secondly, what his encounter with Jesus shows us about Jesus. Because this is really about what is Jesus like? 
And what can we learn about him from these encounters? As we saw, Andrew and John became followers of Jesus because they took heed to God's preparatory revelation. Because they were disciples of John the Baptist, they became disciples of Jesus. It was through that ordinary providence that they became disciples of Jesus. What about Peter? Now we might say, surely with Peter. Peter, I mean, he's the, the chief apostle. The guy who stood up among the twelve at the very beginning and, and, and led the church in the beginning. One of the inner three of Jesus' disciples. Surely Peter, the first leader and apostle to the Jews, when he became a follower of Jesus, all was extraordinary. Sure, false. Surely he had an extraordinary providence that led him to Jesus. True or false? False, as we see in this story. Verse 42 simply tells us that his brother brought him to Jesus. And this is an amazing thing. The man who was first to lead the church and to be the, the chief apostle of the twelve was not directly sought by Jesus, but indirectly through his brother Andrew. You might say, how very uninteresting, you know? <clears throat> when you look at the prominence of Peter later, you must say, Jesus must have been like it to him. No, actually, Andrew brought him, his brother brought him, quite, you know, to be expected. And what we're seeing here, brothers and sisters, is God does not always work through extraordinary providences to accomplish His will. We shouldn't presume upon it, but He works through the mundane. He works through simple people listening to what He has said, listening to other simple people relaying the message of God. And it's a fascinating thing to consider that the difference between a soul's eternity either in heaven or in hell, might be simply listening to a family member, listening to a friend, or listening to a sermon, as mundane as that is. Okay, think about that for a moment. The difference between heaven or hell for somebody might be that they were invited to church by somebody and they heard a sermon and they believed Heaven or hell. That's a big thing. Not dependent upon an extraordinary providence, but just God's ordinary providence working through a family or a friend or a sermon or a message or a word. And so we shouldn't wait for God's extraordinary providences, presume upon them, or think, unless I have a Damascus, Damascus Road experiences, I'm not important to God, I can't be used by God, I just gotta wait until God takes notice. That's not what we're seeing here. When we look at the first disciples of Jesus, who turned out to be the apostles. And if you read between the lines, you see that the case of Peter is the same as the case with Andrew and John. He was also a man of serious religious conviction who availed himself of the preparatory revelation of God. For Andrew did not go back to Galilee to get Peter, Peter was there in the wilderness. Because he too was a disciple of John the Baptist. It's after Peter meets Jesus that Jesus decides to go to Calvary. So we see that with Andrew, with John, and with Peter, with the first three disciples, they were followers of Jesus because they were followers of John. And lastly, it's obvious from the rest of Peter's life story that this encounter with Jesus had a profound impact upon his life and he became a follower of Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Apacus, which is translated Peter, which means rough. Though they had never met before, Jesus was able to look at him in a way that nobody else had ever looked at him. And he named him on that first encounter. 
Perhaps the first thing he said to him. He gave him a new name. Now imagine meeting a total stranger, and they meet you, and before they say anything, they look at you in a way that no one has ever looked at you before. And they rename you. Your name is Josiah. You shall be called this. Amen. <laughs> Imagine that. That oddness is what Peter encountered with Jesus. But he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah because Jesus wasn't just playing games with him. Jesus, as the Son of God, really could see into his soul, see into his future, see what he could do with Peter. And it shows his lordship over Peter, and he has the right and the authority to name him as well. Was Jesus just, was he better describing Peter? You know, you're, you're called Simon, but I got a better name for you that suits you. Or was he predicting or prophesying what Peter would be? I think probably the latter. He wasn't just saying, you know, you're, you're, you're a rock-like person. Peter's a better name for you than Simon. It's more probable that he was saying, you know, you're not a rock-like person, but, but you shall be. But the focus here, our focus this morning, is not on Peter, as, as it is on Jesus' ability to know him and to shape him and to have authority over him. Next week, we're going to see that Jesus knows Nathaniel perfectly. In chapter 2, verse 24, it is said that Jesus knows all men. It's not that Jesus just knew Peter and just knew him, but Jesus knows all of us like that. And if you were to meet Jesus, he could look at you like no one else looks at you. He would know everything about you, and he would be able to give you a name. You know, your parents called you this, but I call you this. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, it tells us that all who follow him and who overcome, he will give to them. A new name. He will give you the perfect name. Because he knows you. What does it mean to become a follower of Jesus? It means to become a disciple, a pupil, a student, and a learner of Jesus. That is, someone who submits themselves to the teaching of Jesus Christ and believes the truth, the revelation, and the life that Jesus brings about religion, about ourselves, and about God. We become a follower of Jesus when we take him as our shepherd, when we respond to his shepherd calls as his sheep. And we gladly will take Jesus as our shepherd when we have availed ourselves of God's preparatory revelation. If you have not done that, haven't been concerned about God, what God has already said before Jesus has come and spoken, then unless by some extraordinary providence you won't become a follower of Jesus. So I exhort you, if you're not a Christian, to start taking seriously what God has already spoken. And don't presume upon his extraordinary providence. All of it leads to Jesus. We don't break from it all when we become Christians. We are faithful to it all when we become Christians. And we will gladly join ourselves to Jesus Christ forever because he is the one who knows us perfectly, who loves us perfectly, and who invites us into his eternal abode and home on the basis of his death for our sins. Let us continue to follow him to believe in him, to God alone, the only glory. Let's pray. Son, Jesus Christ, who is in your bosom, your only Son, into this world, 
to remove our sins and to invite us into your home. Lord, that's truly amazing. Thank you that he is the shepherd of our souls who we return to. And thank you that he leads us as our shepherd. And we don't, and he is our shepherd. Jesus as our shepherd. We want nothing. We're comforted and we'll dwell in your house forever. Thank you for doing this for us, Lord. We confess that we don't deserve it. What we truly deserve by our own works is to be cast away. So help us to marvel again and fresh this morning at what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that we would share this discovery with others, and that you would cause many to realize their great need. Thank you, Lord. Please be glorified in our in our lives, and in your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.